morning, everybody. Um, we'll be in John 13 today, so go ahead and turn with me there, uh, if you would. And kids who are headed to Gospel Project, hope you have a great time uh, together. So here's the deal. You're going to be staring at my forehead. I'm going to be thinking about you staring at my forehead, and we're going to get nothing done. So let's just talk about my forehead for a minute. It wasn't a two-by-four. Thank you, Austin. Um, we've moved recently into an older home so that there's not wood in this house to hurt me. There is um, concrete, block, and plaster. Uh, last night, I went to plug in my phone. I wish there was a more heroic story, uh, but one of the benefits of my lupus is I am uh, often very dizzy, and uh, somehow I lost my wits and uh, whacked my head on the corner of the main point on the wall in the room. And I thought I just scraped it, but as I was lying on the ground, I recognized the rather large pool of blood next to me. And so I had gashed it open pretty good. Jill's out of town right now, my wife with her mom. Uh, so it's about 1130. I didn't know what to do. So, like, do I need stitches or not? That's the question. So I FaceTimed her. Jill, <laughs> do I need stitches or not? She says, I don't know. I can't tell. And it's going to leave a pretty bad scar if you don't. I said, well, I don't have a lot to work with in the first place. But the kids were asleep. I thought they were asleep. Um, so I texted everyone that lives within a half a mile or so of here and uh, said, would, would anyone like to come over and help me with my head? So Phil Hoshiwara was the one still awake. So Phil went to the store, bought some uh, butterfly strips, and uh, he and Abby uh, glued my head back together and fixed me all up. Thank you, brother. So um, the, uh, the knot that ensued was terrific, and uh, so I spent half the night with ice on my head. So if this sermon is better than normal, <laughs> you'll know why. Brett is going to read for us. Brett, would you come? We are in John 13, uh, 31 to 38. I thought you might be going down just then. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and, glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Thank you, brother. Uh, the, the Bible is uh, a most, or the most remarkable book. It is the completely accurate, trustworthy, dependable, authoritative Word of God. And it's expressed through human agency. You see, God used prophets and apostles and their delegates to record God's Word in such a way that it is faithfully conveying to us all that God would want us to know. And yet it's doing so through the words of people. So it is both the Word of God and written by human beings. This is a fascinating way in which God chose to communicate to us because the Scriptures give us God's Word exactly as we need it in such a way, though, that the human author's personality and vocabulary and experiences and style of writing are not erased. So I bring that up uh, to emphasize something in particular. But before I want to show you that, the way in which we have expressed this as a church in our statement of faith uh, is under an article that addresses uh, how God has made himself known. It's called Revelation. Not referring to the last book in the Bible, but just the fact that God has revealed himself, God has shown himself. Um, it says this in this article that we teach in the membership class. We believe that God has graciously disclosed his existence and power in creation, and has supremely revealed himself in the person of his Son, the incarnate Word. God has also revealed himself in his written Word, the verbally inspired 66 books of the Old and New Testament. It is complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. I brought all of that up uh, this morning to say that John wrote his gospel in somewhat of analogous way to how a good, wise parent parents their children, especially their teenage children. So, what John does is he surfaces an issue, and he says a little bit about it, and then he moves on to something else, giving you time for that to soak in. And then he circles back around, brings it back up, but says more, even confronts, and in a more powerful, deeper way, tells us more about the same issue. And then he goes on to something else, and then he comes back around again. Any parent with a teenager knows that's how you talk to your teenager, right? So some of you still need to learn that, I guess. This is an important thing. This is the only way my parents, who are here today, survived my childhood. I was an incredibly bullheaded kid. I'm the one with the mic now. Keep your mouth shut. My father was my pastor for many, many, many years. What goes around comes around. 
Um, so John is going to tell us a bunch of things today that he's already told us, but he's going to give us more than he's given us before. And I hope that that will feed our soul in very significant way. We are roughly 15 to 18 hours from Jesus' crucifixion at this point in the book of John. And the betrayer, Judas, is now gone. For the first time, Jesus' group, his disciples, is pure. It's cleansed. There is no fraud among them. And that little group was God's plan through which to extend his gospel all over the ancient world. And we today are simply an outworking of that original group. We're, we're the church. We're his disciples. We're on the mission of continuing to press the gospel into every nook and cranny and heart that would listen in the entire planet. But Jesus is with that group for the very first time in its purity. And he's got some things he wants to tell them. In the next six, seven weeks, we're going to be listening in on that conversation that Jesus had with those disciples and that he's continuing to have uh, with us. The big idea of this passage, verses 31 to 38, is complex. And I wrote this before I hit my head. So don't blame it on that. All right? I think the main thing being said here is this, that love among believers is both rooted in and commanded by God, and it's in response to and measured by Jesus' love for us. Love among believers is rooted in and commanded by God, and it's in response to and measured by Jesus' love for us. All I want to do in the remaining time we have together is spend some time with you thinking about those two pairs of ideas. First, let's take the first. Love among believers is rooted in and commanded by God. Now, by indicating that love between Christians is rooted in God, I don't simply mean Christians love because God first loved us. That's true. That's important. But that isn't what Jesus had in mind in those first couple of sentences. He was saying something even more basic, something that was true in the beginning, something that was true before he created anything, something that will always be true forever. Look at verse 31 and 32 again. When he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That's a lot of stuff being said over and over and over in so much glory. I'm not sure what it's about, but I know it has something to do with glory. That's what I thought the first time I read it. At one level, Jesus is simply announcing what's about to happen. So we talked a few weeks ago about how Jesus' glorification in John is a way of Jesus saying, uh, my death, burial, resurrection, and ascension 
are the very epicenter of God's activity in the world. They're the clearest place you can look to see God. At one level, Jesus is just saying, this is about to happen. And I'm so certain that it's about to happen, I can speak of it in the past tense. God's glorified. So it's still 15 to 18 hours away, and Jesus is already saying, it's done, it's complete, it's a whole. I'm confident the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. But on another level, Jesus must be saying more than that, particularly because of verse 32. He's saying more than, here's what's coming. If you could imagine this as Jesus is taking the the curtain of heaven and he's opening it just a little bit and allowing us to peer inside and to see something that's been true forever. Now this will feel incredibly impractical, but there's nothing in the scriptures that's there to just cause us to say, I don't have any clue what that means. It's there to inform us in who God is. And so labor with me for just a couple of minutes as I try to find a way to explain this. Look at verse 32. If God is glorified in him, that's in Jesus, God will glorify Jesus in himself and glorify him at once. God is revealing his character here in a most profound way. Friends, for all of eternity, the Father, God the Father, has been relating to God the Son in perfect love. God the Father has been saying, Look at my Son. Isn't he great? Isn't he perfect? and wise, and powerful, and eternal. Doesn't he know everything? Isn't he remarkable? (coughs) And Jesus, God the Son, hasn't been saying, because of that, about time, the Father recognized it. He didn't treat the Father the way I just treated my Father. No, he's saying, no, 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 don't look at me. Look at the Father. Isn't he lovely? Isn't he perfect? Isn't he just? Doesn't he always and forever deal with wrong in the right way? Isn't he pure? And then the Spirit is joining in and saying, aren't they both magnificent? And this has been going on forever. That is the glory of God. God the Father loving God the Son. God the Son loving God the Father. See, God is a perfect community in and of Himself. God is love. And forever, God's been displaying that love. I find it fascinating that at the the moment Jesus has his new community in its purity for the first time, that what he's wrapped up in is 
This is how Father and Son and Spirit have always been relating. This is the display of God. And now you Christians go love each other. Friends, we love because God loves. We love because God is love. We put it this way. The cross and resurrection shows this loving nature within the Trinity perfectly and therefore displays the glory of God better than anything else ever could. About 150 years ago, a British pastor put it this way. The perfect harmony and cooperation of the persons of the blessed Trinity shine out here. The Son glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. The Son shows the world by His death how holy and just is the Father and how He hates sin. The Father shows the world by raising and exalting the Son in glory, how He delights in the redemption of sinners which the Son has accomplished. Now, what would compel God to do something like that, which cost him so much? Love. Love. I can feel your boredom setting in. And that is most unfortunate. Because, friend, the thing we most want in our relationships with each other, the quality that is most essential to a healthy, fruitful church, the aspect of relationship we most need is all caught up in what I've just said. We love, yes, because Jesus first loved us. But even more basically than that, we love because we've been made in the image of God. And we exist to glorify God. And if God is love in his essence, if his nature has always been displaying love among these members of the Trinity, then of course, Christians who have been rescued out of the sinful selfishness that marred our every thought, of course we would be people of love. Because that's who our God is. Our boredom with deep theology is the thing that would keep us from experiencing and drinking deep in the love of God as we express it to each other. This is immensely practical. Christians, love between us is rooted in God because the love between us is meant to be a reflection of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, yes, it is a dim reflection it is uh, something like if you went out about noon today with a little flashlight and tried to shine it up at the sun. 
But it is a reflection nonetheless. It's been a while since I've been in science, but I think, if I remember correctly, the moon has no light of its own. It only reflects the glory, the radiance, the light of the sun. But it's beautiful, isn't it? Church, we are the moon of the sun. And so the love that we would display to each other in the most mundane, simple ways is a cause for the world to watch and be amazed. That's what this passage is about. Brothers and sisters, we must love each other. This love between Christians is not optional. It's not for those of us who have attained some high level of spiritual maturity. It's not for some small subset of the church, like just those in your GC. This love is not for those of us who are easy to love. This love is not merely for the people we like. This love is not only for those that have disposable time and income. It's not limited to those of us who have learned a lot of the Bible. This love is not only for those who don't have a checkered past. This love is for everybody. This love is commanded to be the norm of how we would relate to each other. Love is the central identifying marker of the church. It is our ID card. It is the distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. It is the relational rule of how we would relate in all of life. Love is who God is. So, of course, God's people would be aiming at displaying who He is by loving each other. Around 100 years after John wrote his gospel, there was a Christian leader, a theologian, pastor named Tertullian. And Tertullian was thinking about what the church is like, and he wrote about love. Let me read you a section of what he wrote. We are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, by the bond of common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. We assemble to read our sacred writings. With the sacred words, we nourish our faith. We animate our hope. We make our confidence more steadfast. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase, but by established character and bonked heads. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Now, here he's turning from what Christians do as they get together and what we experience to how the world, those outside the church, think about Christians. Now, listen closely to this. See, they say, how they love each other, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they're ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner put to death. 
Tertullian, as he thought about the church, he thought about love. He thought about how the scriptures tell us to love. And how we love because God is love. And how as those outside of us think about us, we've got to be thinking, look at how they love. Is that how Church on Mill is thought of? I think in many ways, yes. We don't get an F in this category. But we can still excel more, continue to grow. We can always expand in more and more love because the love of God is infinite. Friend, every time uh, someone, those of you with kids, every time someone over in the preschool building holds your child and they get slobber on them and runny nose and spit up, and hold that child trying to get her to stop crying. And they do that so that mom or dad can be in here for a little bit of time to listen to God's word undistractedly. Every time you sit down and listen to a college student go on and on and on about how they don't know what they're going to do with the rest of their life, or how the latest romantic thing is going. Every time you go to a fellow church member and say, maybe you didn't recognize this, but I think when you did this, it was sinful. Every time someone's ill and they're unable to do everything they would normally do, and you take a meal Every time you turn away from your own prayers, your needs like this, and instead you look up and out and pray not simply for self, but for the God's, for the, for God's I said for the God's, that's not good, for God's blessing on the people of God, thinking about others and their issues and their needs, interceding for them. Friends, Every time we do these things, the glory of God is put on display because God is love, the Father loving the Son. This is rooted in and commanded by God because this is who God is. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, we read these words. And I can't help but think, as John wrote this, that he's reflecting back on Jesus saying, love each other, in John 13. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a $100 word that means wrath taker. It means 
Jesus took the discipline, the wrath, the consequence, the punishment that every Christian deserves. Hear it that way. We read it last week. Do you remember? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath taker for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's, God abide in us and His love is perfected in us. Friends, how would people see God today? The same way they've always seen God. By watching how Christians treat each other. So when we do anything that we do to help each other, we do so knowing that God is seen through the most simple mundane tasks. As we turn from self and turn towards each other, we're showing the way God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have been relating for all time. Let's take more quickly that other pair of ideas that love among believers is in response to and measured by Jesus' love for us. Back in John 13, 34, it says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I think the most confusing thing in this entire passage is the word new. How is it that Jesus told his disciples, uh, this is new, now love each other. If you've ever read any of the Old Testament, there's love everywhere. There are examples of love. There are demonstrations of love. There are commandments to love. There is love all over the place. So in what way did Jesus mean, love each other and this is new? Well, friends, what he meant is, in my death and burial and resurrection and ascension, I will show you the love of God in such an intensified way, in such a dramatic way, in such a clear demonstration of the character of God that your response to this love will feel new because you will see it unlike you have ever seen it before. This is the love of God. Now extend it to each other. Church, any godly love that we would extend to each other is simply in response to the love we've already received. And this is most encouraging. Because there are days it feels like there's no love to give. There are days there are people that don't look very lovely. There are days that we don't want to love. But God is not commanding us here to drum up something that we haven't experienced. He's telling us, no, look back at the gospel. Remember the day God saved you. When you, when you heard the truth and you, it clicked and you understood for the first time, I am in dramatic, desperate, hopeless need. I am headed for hell. And yet God graciously loves me 
He gave Himself on the cross for me. And now, in fact, I'm going to turn from sin and turn to God, and His arms are stretched out in love, and He receives me graciously into His family. When I was, in fact, at my most unloveliness, Jesus loves me the most, adopts me, forgives me, reconciles me, justifies me, welcomes me. God loves me like that. Friend, when you're taking that meal to someone and you're exhausted, and perhaps some of us are even giving away the meal that was our own to eat because we don't have enough money to eat on our own. What we're feeding on is not self-effort. It's the love we've already experienced in Christ. And as we love like that, then it causes us afresh and anew to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians, we are not called to experience this flood of God's love and then to to dam it up. We're instead to simply be conduits through which the brilliant, beautiful, ever-flowing, pure love of God comes into us and it moves out into any and every nook and cranny of God's world that He would want it to as we love because we've been loved. And this would so mark the everyday life of the people of God that we would constantly be drinking anew of the love of God. And so we forgive because we've been forgiven. We welcome because we've been welcomed. We speak truth because the truth has come to us. We extend grace because we're recipients of grace. We confront because we've been confronted. We accept one another because God's accepted us. We embrace because we've been embraced. We serve because we've been served. I'm not talking about anything from the court. We love because we've been loved. And this love among us is to be measured only by the measureless love of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 34 again. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just a little bit. No. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Brothers and sisters, how has God loved you? He's loved you totally, completely, fully, purely, undeservedly, joyfully, comprehensively, sacrificially, eternally. In every other Lee I couldn't think of. He has loved you in every possible way there is to be loved. That is how we love each other. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love God has for you will never tap out. Therefore, 
if we are relying and residing and abiding in that love, then the love we have for each other ought never tap out. The extent to which we love each other is just as. Now, the only time you've heard the next verse I want to quote, next verses, is at a wedding. And that was a no-no. If you used this in your wedding, sorry. But 1 Corinthians 13 is not about husband and wife. It is about brother and sister. So quit making it weird. <laughs> Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's church love. How do we love each other? Like that. Just as. The local church is to be a community of genuine love because we have been most loved by God and we have been welcomed into, we'll see in John in the coming weeks, we've been welcomed into the unity and the love of the Trinity. How does that love look in practical, concrete ways? I made a list. It's not comprehensive. We would be here forever then. Because there, there are an endless numbers of way, endless numbers of ways for just as love to be worked out. But here are a few examples. We love each other by making a commitment to each other in membership. Friends, some of you need to quit dating the church. You need to get married. When we pledge our membership commitment to each other, we're saying, until God sends me to some other church or he kills me, I will be here. I'm in. And my commitment is to love as I've been loved, to receive love as I have been loved. We, we love each other by attending church gatherings regularly. And on time. You, you don't go to movies late. Why would you come to the gathering of your family late? We love each other by praying for each other. The most helpful critical vital Thing we do for one another is pray. Because the things we most need can only come from God. And so we ask a good God to give to his people in prayer. We love each other through financial generosity and through not holding our possessions tightly, but through sharing them with each other liberally as there's need. We love each other through saying two words some of us never say. 
I'm sorry. We love each other by reminding each other of the gospel when we're in doubt. And we don't need harsh words in that moment. We just need encouragement and to be reminded of what's true even when it doesn't feel true. We love each other by hunting each other down when we stop showing up. We love each other even by removing a member from membership if they display an ongoing, significant, unrepentant sin that would cause them to question, is this person genuinely a follower of Christ? Because the most unloving thing we could do is continue to show up, pat somebody on the back, and go home and think, maybe they'll squeak in, but I don't think so. We love each other through prioritizing relational, sacrificial, informal time together where we're not dependent on church leaders to schedule stuff in church buildings, but we're simply enveloping community, life together in the normal mundane stuff of eating meals and going to the store, having a cup of coffee, going for a walk, and doing these things together to relate to one another and to convey the love of God to each other. We love each other by doing anything and everything that would be helpful to each other whenever there's opportunity. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why, as Jesus had the very first couple of sentences to give his disciples, did he go here? Well, it's true that this is helpful to us, encourages us, helps us mature as believers and grow up in the gospel and drink deep of Christ. All that's true. But that's not primarily why Jesus said this. Look at verse 35. By this, the this is the love between Christians. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is infinitely concerned for sinners to come to know him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what is his strategy? Love. As Christians display love to each other in freakishly weird ways where we keep loving even when the other does not any longer want to receive love, where we freely, liberally, graciously continue to serve and help and aid and pray and give and welcome and embrace and confront. And we do it over and over and over we show, like the moon to the sun, something of the glory and the light and the radiance of God. And those among the world that God is calling see that and say, what is going on? And the church grows. This is God's plan. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
Our hope would be that you have seen today, in fact, in our singing and in our greeting, in our confessing together truth, and in our humbly listening to God's word, that we love each other. And we would invite you to come to Christ, to turn from sin, to turn to God, to be welcomed into a loving family. That's the way all of us got in. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And if you're here today and you are already a believer, are you experiencing the love of God in this way? Are you giving the love of God like this? If not, that's not something to wallow in. God's love leads us to repentance. His kindness welcomes us back. So confess it. And then by grace decide, what are you going to do with the rest of the day? How can you love someone well? Last night when I sent that text, I got a boo-boo. Can someone come help me? Phil, no doubt, wasn't thinking. Part of my residency is going to be pulling my pastor's skin back together. But he came. And my daughter, who loves me so much, she wasn't thinking at 11.30 at night, I'm going to get to help clean up dad's blood off the floor and hold this on his head while we wait for Phil. But as Phil left and I got in bed next to Abby to pray with her before getting in bed myself, and we began praying together, and I thought about the love not just of a a daughter, flesh and blood, but of a sister in Christ. And the, the love of a brother who would come at a whim and go to the store and come help me with my head as Chuck hurt something else again. I literally started crying as I thought about experiencing the truth that I would get to talk about today. The love of God is shown in holding together foreheads in coming when there's a need. Let us love each other because God is love. Pray with me. Father, help us to re-experience your love in the gospel and to be compelled by that love to love one another well. I pray you would fill our minds now with very concrete, practical ways through which we could extend love to one another. I pray also for non-Christians here that, God, you would show them the love that is available in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would turn from sin and turn to you. God, help us in an area which we are doing pretty well in, but we want to continue to grow. And that's that we would be a place, a people of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God wants 
us to know that we know that we know that he loves us. And so one of the things he's given us to do is something tactile to remind us, to even help us to re-experience the truth of the gospel. And that something is what's called the Lord's Supper. So we've asked some brothers and sisters if they would prepare some bread and a cup to remind us of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Would you come now and start handing that out? And if you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, you're a member of some church, and you're prepared today to take the Lord's Supper, would you take the cup as it's passed? There's two. The juice and bread are together. So take those. And as you take them and hold them, we'll, take, we'll all take them together in a moment. But as those are being passed out, would you just take a quiet moment of reflection to remember that Christ died for you and his blood was shed for you to confess anything that would need to be confessed, to even go to someone else, another brother or sister, and be reconciled to them. Let's reflect quietly for a moment and then I'll invite us to take.